So we're continuing our series called On the Run, where we're looking at the life of a man that many of us know as David, but if you, if you research about him, you're gonna find that he's called King David. And the reason he's called King David is because he's believed to be, from a biblical perspective, as well as from a Jewish historical view, the greatest king to have ever ruled over Israel. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to be king for a day or queen for a day, right? You would just think that everything would go your way and that everybody would do what you wanted them to do and life would be great. And maybe that's true sometimes, but what we're finding in David's life is that there were day-to-day chaotic situations leading up to him becoming king that kept him on the run for his life, on the run, just trying to stay alive. And so today, I want you to think about the most chaotic situation you've ever been in and think about how long it lasted and where you went and what you did to get out of it and how people responded to you. A lot of time when our life blows up, our good friends will come and say, hey, how can I help? But a lot of times people take a step back and say, oh, I don't know that I want to mess with all the drama. But we're gonna see a very interesting pattern develop in David's life. The crazier his life got, the more chaotic his life was, the further and the faster he had to run to get away to be safe, more and more people were leaning into David. More and more people were coming to David and say, hey, we, we want you to be our leader. We wanna follow you wherever you go. And so with that in mind, I have a question that I want you to be thinking about. What was it about David's life that in spite of all the chaos that was going on, what was it about his life that drew people to him? What was it about his life that even while he was running for his life, even while his life looked like a disaster, what was it that compelled people to want to follow him and to make him their leader? So as we jump into David's story, I'm gonna give you a quick history lesson just to bring us up to speed on where we've been so far. David was anointed to be king of Israel, the next king of Israel, at the age of 12 or 13 in 1 Samuel 16. Now I have a 12 or 13 year old and the thought of him being a king scares me to death. But he was anointed in front of his seven older brothers, in front of his father and in front of the town elders. And there was just, it was an exciting day. Everybody knew something special had just happened, but there was just one problem. Israel already had a king, a man named Saul. And as you might expect, there was going to be tension between David and Saul at some point in time. Now, about 18 months to two years after being anointed, David did something that no one else was willing to do. He voluntarily stepped up and and, and agreed to fight the Philistine giant Goliath in a winner-take-all battle for the freedom of the Israelites. No other man in the land was willing to do this. And David said, I'll do it. He won the battle. He cut off his head. He kept it as a trophy, making him the most famous man, the most popular man in Israel, and the most feared man among the Philistines. And here's what's really crazy. It's easy for us to forget about this. He was just a teenager. He wasn't even old enough to be part of the Israelite army. But King Saul right away learned that David was gonna be invaluable to him. In fact, look at what what 1 Samuel 18, 2 tells us. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Verse five, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So for the next seven years, David's life was really, really good. He got a promotion. He was really good at his job. And as a result, everyone in the kingdom loved him. 
But apparently David was a little too good at his job. Look at the next verse, verse six. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the women came out of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with joyful songs. They said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Literally translated, Saul's okay, but David's a stud, right? I mean, that's what that sounds like. Now I want you to picture the scene here. Everyone was celebrating because the Israelites had defeated their arch enemy, the Philistines. And I wanna paint a picture for you that all of us will be able to understand. The Philistines were worse. This is, just trust me. They were worse than the Patriots, okay? The Philistines, it doesn't matter who you cheer for. You know, that, that means something. My son was like, Daddy, I don't even think that's true. And I was like, no, no, it's true, trust me. They're worse than the Philistines, worse than the Patriots. This was a really big deal because David would have been like the third string rookie quarterback that was gonna lead them to the championship victory in the AFC championship game, right? This was a big deal. And all the soldiers and all the cheerleaders were singing all about David. And as you might imagine, that didn't sit well with Saul. And as his popularity grew, Saul became insanely jealous. In fact, he tried to kill David in broad daylight on numerous occasions inside of the palace. But when David kept getting away, Saul decided that he was gonna enlist his entire army to go on a nationwide manhunt to hunt David down and to kill him. Now, I want you to imagine at this point in your life, you're David. You never asked for God to anoint you or to choose you to be the next king. You didn't apply for a job to work for the king in the palace. And the only reason you fought Goliath was because no one else was man enough to do it. You didn't ask for all the people to sing your praises. And in fact, the only thing you've ever done is the one thing that your mom and dad taught you to do. Do your job as best as you can, right? And you were doing that to make Saul look good, but it didn't make him happy. And now he's trying to kill you. So what would you do? What should you do? Well, if you keep reading David's story in 1 Samuel 21, we we learn that he went and lived in the one place that you wouldn't expect him to live. He went to live among the Philistines, but get this, he lived in Goliath's hometown of Gath. How bad would your life have to be that you would be willing to go and live in the one place where you killed their champion thinking it's probably safer here than it is among my own people? This would be like a Colts fan being banished from Indiana and living in Tom Brady's basement in Boston. It would be terrible, right? You'd feel like you're on house arrest. Well, it wasn't long before the Philistines figured out who David was, which meant he had to go on the run again. And in 1 Samuel 22, we learn that he finally found a place to call home, but it wasn't a home. Look at what 1 Samuel 22, 1 says. David left Gath, the home of Goliath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went there to be with him. Now, can you imagine one moment you're living as the right-hand man for the king in the palace and life is good, and the next moment you're on the run from the king living in a cave? Well, welcome to David's life. Now, this cave in Adullam was located in the Judean wilderness. And here's what's really interesting. David was smart. It's over to the west and it sits right on the boundary between the Philistines and the Israelites. It was the no-fly zone. If the Philistines came to get him, the Israelites were gonna get upset and they were gonna have a war and vice versa, right? So David hid in a very strategic spot. But I, don't, I want you to not be fooled. It was a cave, okay? It wasn't a town or a village. It was not the most desirable place to live. But did you catch who came to live with him there? His brothers 
and his father's household. Now, maybe they came to comfort David or maybe they were, their lives were being threatened as well. But it wasn't just David's family that came. If you read the next verse, look, more people show up. Verse two, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So it wasn't just his family. Now there were others, 400 others. And they're described as being as in distress. These are high drama people, right? The Hebrew word for distress here literally translated means to suffer overwhelming external pressure, which was often brought on by one's enemies. And so as best we can tell, these are people that have been hurt by King Saul in his, during his reign as king. So there's David, he's on the run for his life. He's hunkered down in a cave in the middle of nowhere. And he finds himself surrounded by a bunch of people that are helpless and they're hopeless and they're needy and they're coming to him for guidance. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm David, I'm gonna feel a little overwhelmed, right? I mean, he has some pretty big problems of his own to worry about. And now he's gotta worry about the problems of 400 other people that are described as being distressed, discontent, and disgruntled. But I want you to take a look back at verse two because it tells us something about these people. It says, they gathered around him and he became their commander. Apparently, they weren't just there to live with David because they thrived on drama or they liked camping out in caves. They were seeking his leadership and his guidance in light of the fact that his life was blowing up. So I wanna go back to the question that I asked you earlier. In spite of the chaos in his life, what was it about David that drew people to him? I can't help but wonder if during this season of David's life, he was communicating with his life that he was gonna be faithful in serving God right where he was. I think that's what he was communicating and I think that's what drew these people to him even when where he was was running for his life and hiding in a cave. I mean, think about it. He's living in a cave. This is not a palace. And last I checked, last time I was in a cave, it did not smell good. It didn't have individual living spaces. If you've watched the news lately, you know caves can flood and people can die. There's not new carpet or good lighting. It's terrible. It's an awful place to live. It wasn't like he had this really nice throne that he could sit on that people would be impressed by. He didn't have this big banquet table that he can invite people over to have dinner with him. But according to the book of Psalms, it was at this season of David's life where he was learning to pray prayers that sounded just like this. Psalm 34, eight and nine. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. David wrote that prayer when he was living in the Philistine city of Gath right before he moved to this cave. That's the kind of prayers David was playing, praying. So I think it's safe to say that there was something about his life that was attractive. And he was communicating that he was determined to be faithful to God no matter what the circumstance was, even when it was very, very hard. So maybe this is a good time for us to hit pause and ask ourselves the question, well, what can I learn from David's life right now? How can I be faithful to serve God right where I am? Maybe you're in a marriage that's been less than satisfying. In fact, it's felt a lot more like a war. Maybe you've got some dreams of where you'd like to be in your career or in a relationship, but the truth is you couldn't be further from where you want to be. Maybe you're in a place in life where you feel like you're going nowhere fast, or maybe you just feel like you're stuck in the back of a cave and you don't know what to do. 
I want you to imagine the influence that you could have with others if we would begin to master the art of serving God right where we are, in spite of the circumstances at work and at school and with the people that God has put in your life. Now, I, I confess this to the first service. I get this, and one of the areas where I struggle the most with this is at home because I can juggle all these balls pretty well and I can put on a pretty good face, but I can totally forget about the people that are looking to me for guidance and direction and protection. It's just really easy to get distracted in some way. But here's the thing. People just don't just end up in our life on accident. There's a really good chance God has placed people in your life and in your neighborhood and in your living room and in your classroom and on your campus and in your warehouse. And he wants you to influence them for him. And there's a good chance that they're distressed and discouraged and discontent and disgruntled. But what if God wants to use you in spite of your circumstances to teach them to say, taste and see that the Lord is good and those that fear him lack nothing. I'm not gonna say that's gonna be easy, but it wasn't easy for David. His circumstances weren't easy, but that's the kind of prayers that he prayed. Now, I want you to think about this from David's perspective because whether he realized it or not, apparently he was getting pretty good at this because if you flip forward a few chapters, 400 people grows to 600. It doesn't even make sense. People keep coming to David. And so if you're David, what do you tell them? Hey, I don't know if you realize, I don't really have much of a plan here. Tomorrow, we're just gonna try to stay alive. But here, I want you to know this. God promised me that one day I was gonna be king. And if you can hang with me now in the cave, I promise you that if I ever make it to the palace, I'll do my best to take care of you. And so the story goes on and eventually Saul's soldiers pick up David's trail, which meant that David and his posse had to move again. And as it turns out a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 24, while they're running, they have to jump into another cave. While Saul and his army of 3,000 trained, hand-selected soldiers were hunting him down. But this time, David was gonna have an opportunity unlike any other. He could put all of this to rest right now. Now, for those of you that think the Bible is boring to read, I wanna encourage you to go read this chapter of scripture because the details that we get here are fascinating. I'm just gonna give you the short version of it. David and his men jump into this cave. They go to the back so no one can see them. And here comes Saul and his army of 3,000. You can, you can just hear the, the, the horses and you can hear the stomping. You can hear the noise. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, nature calls. And Saul holds up his hand and stops the whole army and says, potty break. He jumps off. This is the Bible. I'm not making this up. He jumps off of his horse and says, this one's mine. You all find your own. I'll see you in a minute. And he disappears into the cave. Now I want you to imagine that you're David and his men. There's the guy right there. He's been chasing you. He's been hunting you down. He is in the most vulnerable position imaginable. You can take him out, walk out of the cave, game, set, match. What would you do? What would you be tempted to do? Well, I love that in 1 Samuel 24, 4, we learn what David's men wanted to do. 1 Samuel 24, 4 says this. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're saying, bro, you only live once and we haven't been living very good. Grab the bull by the horns, take your sword, 
kill that guy. Let's get out of here. It'll all be done. You'll be king. So what would you do? Well, look at what David did. Verse four, David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, before you read that, you're thinking, oh, he's gonna go kill him. What's up with the the corner of the robe? Well, for Jewish men, the corner of their robe, especially for the king, there were these tassels. And to cut that part of your robe off was a big deal. And so David was kind of calling Saul out saying, "You're, you're not really a very good king. And he takes that. But then look at what it says. He felt conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. I mean, what's this about? How could he feel bad? He's the one causing all the problems. And then look at what David says to his men in verses six and seven. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Imagine the look on their faces. Did you kill him? No, but I got the corner of his robe. Are you kidding me right now? Like you understand what's going on, right? The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And I would add, escaping by the hair of his chinny chin chin, right? He barely escapes and he doesn't even know it. Now you would expect that David's men would be like, that's it, I'm out. I love you, man. Look me up if you ever make it to the palace. I didn't sign up for this. But they hang with him. In fact, they become more loyal to him. And so back to our question, what was it about David that compelled these men to continue to follow him even when he wasn't willing to kill the guy that was trying to kill all of them. Well, apparently David was communicating something important through his actions. And I can't help but wonder if these men were compelled to follow David because David resisted the urge to get ahead of God. David resisted the urge to get ahead of God. Now, have you ever been in a situation like this? Something that you've been promised There's something that you feel like you deserve. There's something that you really want. You have a dream, a plan, a vision, a desire. There's something that you've carried around with you for a long time and all of a sudden it's right there. All you would have to do is to cut a little corner just to grab it. And here's the thing, just like David, no one would blame you. No one would say, this is it, man. Like you you, you have to do this. If you don't do it, I'm gonna do it, right? But deep down, You're conscience stricken. You're just like David. You know you'd be getting ahead of God and you know that that's not good. Well, if you've ever been in a situation like that or if you ever plan to be on a situation like that in the future, you're in really good company because that is exactly where David was. And even though it seemed to be the opportunity of a lifetime, he was able to resist the urge to take the throne by force. Now, I wonder if in this moment, somehow he was able to think back to the past and think, okay, I remember the day that Samuel anointed me. I know that God made a promise. I'm gonna wait on God's timing. Or maybe he was able to look way down into the future and he thought, I bet there's gonna be a day when my grandkids are gonna ask me, hey, grandpa, tell us that story about the time you became king. And I bet he didn't want it to start like this. Well, kids, there we were. The king was naked on the potty and I jumped out of the dark and I killed him with my bare hands. Aren't I brave? Who wants that to be their legacy, right? Somehow David was able to restrain himself. And apparently he had learned there's wisdom in waiting to see God's will done in God's way and in God's timing. Now, David's gonna have another opportunity to kill Saul, which tells me that this was a serious temptation for him. 
and Satan knew it, and he kept presenting him with opportunity after opportunity. And I bet you can relate to that too. Satan just keeps dangling something out in front of you saying, go ahead, take it, you deserve it, get it. Or maybe you're tired of waiting on God and you're ready to just grab it for yourself. Can I just say, I think God has something better for you and I think waiting on God would be much wiser. And that's what David was learning here. Somehow in the midst of all the chaos, David learned that waiting on God to move was better instead of getting ahead of him. And apparently it was pretty attractive to the people because they kept coming. And I wish we had time to go through about four or five more stories today. I mean, we can do that. We'd be here till about 4.30, but I'm gonna guess you're gonna wanna go home, right? So I wanna encourage you to go home and read these stories for yourself, but I'm gonna speed the story up for you because eventually Saul's gonna die, which meant that David should have been king. But instead, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, declares himself and says, I'm the king. And David would have to wait seven more years before he was gonna actually get to be the king. And there was a battle between his family and Ishbosheth's family. But eventually, Ishbosheth is assassinated. And finally, after more than 20 years of waiting and running and cave living, it was time for David to be crowned the king of Israel. But this time, here's what's interesting. It wasn't just his family that came and it wasn't just 400 rebels that came and it wasn't 600 fighters that came. Look at what 2 Samuel 5 verse one tells us. All the tribes of Israel came to David and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people. Interesting that he was a shepherd at one point in time and you will become their ruler. Well, I mean, it's about time. It's only taken 20 years for everybody to come to their senses, right? And they come and they say, we are your family and you are our king. So what was it about David's life that eventually drew all the tribes of Israel to him to be their king? Well, in the next verse, we get a little bit of a hint at what made David so irresistible as a leader. Look at verse three. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David, look at this, the king made a covenant with them before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. You know why that's significant? It'd be really easy for us to just skip over. But in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had listed out what the requirements would be for a king and David knew that. And so David said, I wanna strike a covenant with you because I wanna do this the way God wants it to be done. He didn't schedule a parade. He didn't call a press conference. He didn't look out at all of his enemies and say, hey, when they put that crown on my head, you better be on the run because I don't wanna ever see you again. When David was finally given the opportunity to flex his muscles as a leader, he chose to exercise his authority by making it clear that as king, he was gonna be under authority, under the authority of God. And he modeled this by making a covenant with the people that he would lead before the people or before the God that he would serve. And over the course of time, David had communicated with his life that he wanted to be a different kind of leader. I wanna be the kind of leader that God wants me to be. I wanna be the kind of leader, the kind of king that Israel really wants and needs. Now, I wanna be really, really, really clear on this. This does not mean that David was perfect. In fact, when you come back next week, we're gonna look at some stories from David's life where he blew his family up and he would hurt the nation of Israel. And you could argue that they never really fully recovered. But time and time again, David made it clear that no matter what life threw at him, no matter how badly he had messed up, 
He would always run to God for wisdom, strength, courage, protection, forgiveness, and guidance. So if there's one lesson that we can learn from David's life, it's this. Whether David realized it or not, he was communicating a message with his life. So what was that message? Well, over and over again, he wanted people to know, I'm not living for myself. I'm living for someone else. And it became obvious that the someone else was God. It was Yahweh. It was the creator of the universe. And because he lived for God, no matter what was going on in his life, people couldn't stay away. Think about this. Over the course of his life, his influence grew not because of his position, because he didn't really have a position. He didn't have a title. His influence over others was a product of his walk with God faithfully day after day. So David communicated a message with his life. And that would be true. What would be true for David as he was becoming king would eventually be true for his great, 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 great grandson who would be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem. 1,000 years later, he would be named Jesus. And scripture tells us even though he was born into a royal lineage, he wasn't just a king. He is currently the king of kings. And Jesus was always, 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 always communicating a message with his life. In fact, if you're familiar with Jesus's life, there's a story that I bet you've heard of. In the city of David, in the town of Jerusalem, Israel's capital, in the last week of his life, one week before he would die, Jesus rides in on a donkey and the people are going crazy. And essentially what they're saying is, you are our king. We want you to be our king. Some of them even tried to force Jesus' hands and he resisted. And he kept his focus. He didn't stay the night in Jerusalem. In fact, he kind of avoided the crowds until about Thursday night. He gathered together with his disciples for a meal that we're very familiar with. We celebrate it on a regular basis where he would break the bread and give the cup and say, this is my body, this is my blood. But going into that final meeting, the gospel writer John gives us a very important detail that we would want to know. Look at what John 13, three says. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his, what's the word? Authority. All the authority of the God of heaven was given to Jesus as he sat at that table. And he knew that a friend would sell him out and he knew that they were gonna come and arrest him. And they knew that they were gonna pierce him and nail him to a cross. He knew that he was gonna die for the sins of the world. He knew that he was gonna be separated from his father. He could have written a different ending. He could have flexed his muscles and said, it ain't gonna happen like this. But Jesus instead communicated a message to those disciples they would never, ever, ever forget. He got down and he started washing their feet. It was the job that no one wanted to do. And the hands that they had seen calm the storm and the hands that had multiplied the food and the hands that had touched the lepers and the hands that had healed the sick and the hands that had comforted children and the hands that had welcomed society's outcasts were now washing their feet. All authority in heaven on earth was given to him. And he says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna wash your feet. He wanted everyone to know I'm living for someone else and that someone else is my heavenly father. That's Jesus's story. That's the message he was communicating with his life. So here's my question. What message are you communicating with your life? What message are you communicating that could influence others for Jesus and his kingdom? What does the way you're living right now say about what's most important to you? 
What does it say about your faith and your focus and your purpose? Men, what message are you communicating with your life in the way that you love your wife and you care for your children? What message are you communicating in the way you do business and the way you treat your customers? What message are you communicating in the way you look at and treat women? Ladies, what message are you communicating with your life in the way that you use your time and the way that you care for your husband and your kids and the way that you perform your work and the way that you speak about others? If you're a single or a dating couple, what are you communicating about your life and the way that you view your body? Students, as you go back to school, what message are you communicating in the way that you speak about your faith in the hallways, in the way that you respond to authority of your parents and teachers and administrators, or the way that you share love with the people at school that no one else wants to love? How does the view of your how does how does the way you view your finances reflect your love for God? Are you generous or are you greedy? What message are you communicating? Is your life communicating a message that you live for someone else and something that matters? Or is it to say, I'm just in this for me? David communicated a message that his life was about someone else. Jesus communicated a message that his life was for someone else. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he's calling us to do the same thing. But I want to be real honest. Isn't it easy to feel like David in that cave and say, I don't know why I'd want to use my life. I've messed it up. I don't even blame God. I'm not even sure I want to mess with my life right now. Can you imagine the prayers that David prayed in that cave when it was dark and damp and gloomy? I can't help but wondering if he didn't pray things like, oh God, I just wish I could see you at work. I wish that I could feel you moving, but I know you're there. So as we go into this next song, I want you to pay really close attention to the words and ask yourself, what message am I communicating with my life?